The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello, you may have heard in the news about a man in Australia named James Harrison, who has been called the man with the golden arm. Early in life, he learned that his blood plasma was unusual and could be used to help treat a disease found in infants. He started donating blood plasma once every three weeks for 57 years. Over 1,100 donations altogether, and doctors used that blood plasma to save more than 2 million babies. It's a staggering number. What a life! What a contribution to the planet! for one person to make. It's a contribution that will keep on giving as those babies grow up to become contributors themselves and to have children of their own. Who knows how much happiness this one man with a golden arm created. Our subject today, we might say, had a golden pen. 600 million books sold at last count, with hundreds of millions more sure to be sold in the future. And these books are special, not a A politician's biography given as a Christmas gift and never read, and not a dime store novel read once and discarded by a distracted reader, but books that are read again and again, dozens of times, hundreds of times, as I know from personal experience, and I suspect you do as well. A single book by this author in a school library might easily be read a hundred times by a hundred different children. My copy of Green Eggs and Ham was probably read a hundred times a week at one point. Just me to my son, with him using his sign language to demand that it be read again. Stupidly, I tried to entertain myself by reading it in a growling voice just once to break the monotony. After that, it was the only acceptable version. Green Eggs, Ham, he would say, and when I would start in my normal voice... He would growl to make me drop my voice into an uncomfortable lower octave. Millions, billions of experiences like that one. Kids learning lessons, sitting on the laps of caregivers, sitting in semicircles with a teacher at the center, sitting by themselves, turning pages, entertained by pictures, learning to read. Neither of the two names on his books, Dr. or Seuss, was accurate. He was not a doctor, certainly not a medical one, and although he attended a Ph.D. program in English literature, he dropped out before receiving a degree. Nor was his last name Seuss. That, in fact, was his middle name. Adopted by him as a pseudonym in college to allow him to secretly work on the student humor magazine, the Dartmouth Jack-O-Lantern even though he was banned from working on the magazine after having been caught drinking gin with nine of his classmates. The name Seuss stuck. As an author, he would be Seuss now, not his real name, Theodore Geisel. The doctor fit, too. This was a man who knew things, a figure of wisdom, someone who could recognize ills and prescribe the cures. Often those ills were playful, bored children on a rainy day, tasks impossible to perform without a little imagination, the encountering of unusual creatures with highly unusual features, the refusal to try new things, the absence of empathy, the studiously stupid, the willfully blind, figures of fun mostly conveyed with a language and a rhythm and a visual accompaniment that was all his own. 
You could perform an experiment by trying to see how far you can read into a Dr. Seuss book before you know that he's the author. And I don't think you'll get beyond a few lines, but the truth is you'll likely know even before you've read a word. The pictures on the cover will give it away. All this playfulness, all this education, all this sharing of grown-ups and kids, and probably, oh, the most gifted book to graduates too. Oh, the places you'll go. It's a nice bookend. Many kids likely start with Hop on Pop or Fox in Socks or the irrepressible Green Eggs Ham. And then they end their childhood, so to speak, with Oh, the places you'll go. The Good Doctor sending them off one last time, like the family pediatrician waving goodbye to the 20-year-old he knew as an infant, smiling as he does so, a twinkle in his eye. He almost seems to live in his books, Dr. Seuss, as if they were not drawn by a human being, but magic tricks conjured up by a spell. And it can be jarring to see photos of him or to hear his political views. At least one of them has not aged well nor have the cartoons he drew during World War II in service of it. And then in the 60s, as Rachel Carson and others started waking people up to the reality that the planet was not a limitless resource, like the pre-fall Garden of Eden, and in fact human beings could do quite a lot of damage to it with acid rain and leaded gasoline and chopping down forests and poisoning rivers, damage that was the byproduct of our growing population, and increased need for creature comforts. And Dr. Seuss felt angry about it, sad and angry, and he turned that golden pen of his into something with a sharp point. The Lorax was the result, and it looked at these issues squarely and without blinking. What will we do if we use everything up, or use up most of it and wreck all the rest? Where will we live? What will we have lost, and will it have been worth it? That's the dilemma posed by the Lorax, delivered to the people who matter the most, the world's youth, and the people who love them and have committed themselves to taking care of them. We're joined by Mesh Lakani, CEO of Lola Media and co-host of the chart-topping podcast, Better Call Paul, for a discussion of Dr. Seuss's The Lorax today on the history of literature. Okay, here we go. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for joining me. I spent so much time on Dr. Seuss in that intro. I think we've said mostly what we need to say. You know who he is, right? You know his books, you know his drawings, hundreds of millions of books sold. That's rare company for a single person to be in. And today we focus on the Lorax from 1971, from that period when the people of the world are starting to look around themselves at the world and, and say, hang on, there could be some problems here, problems we have not yet solved. By the way, as is evidenced all over the planet, this hot and fiery summer, can we get there? Can we take action? Can we finally live up to the challenge presented to us by Dr. Seuss and the Lorax? Can we wake up and look around? 
and care. Mesh Lakani is someone who cares. I asked him what he wanted to discuss, what classic book, and he said, how about Dr. Seuss's The Lorax? Great choice, I said. Let's go. So, let's go. Let us go, dear listener. Let us go, then you and I, through certain half-deserted streets and hope that we're not headed toward a half-deserted Mother Earth. Listen to that. <laughs> wow. That's a, that's a weather alert coming in. How appropriate. What is it? Flash flood warning. There we go. Ah, and I just read this morning that they think there are some caves on the moon that they didn't know about before. I hope that's not where we'll end up seeking shelter. I like it here. Warnings on two phones at once, notwithstanding. Mesh Lakani, after this. Hey, grown-ups, the Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his Fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself, and it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Okay, joining me now is Mesh Lakani, the CEO of Lola Media and the co-host of the podcast Better Call Paul. He's here today to talk about The Lorex by Dr. Seuss. Mesh Lakani, welcome to the History of Literature. Well, thank you for having me. So, this seems particularly appropriate. Let's start with you as a child. Uh, what kind of childhood did you have, and how did books fit into your childhood? Uh, so, I grew up overseas. I mean, I guess depending on where you are. I was born in Dubai, uh, lived in Bangladesh, lived in Pakistan, went to international schools my whole life. But childhood was really spent in um, early days Bangladesh and then elementary, fourth grade through my senior year in Pakistan at an international school. So I went to an American school system. So it's pretty much, I imagine, the same way any other kid growing up in the U.S. grew up. Same books that we had to read. Yeah, Libraries had the same stuff. We even did those... Uh, you know, those things where you order books, um, you, you get that oh, yeah. list of stuff and you order all that. <laughs> um, you know, I wasn't the biggest 
reader, if I'm being honest. I, I was very much more into like comics and Calvin and Hobbes, and that that was my source of reading. Uh, although I did read whatever we had to read in class. My, my sisters were better about reading um, books at an earlier age, but I think as a childhood, it was obviously Dr. Seuss books, a lot of Archie comics, a lot of Calvin and Hobbes, uh-huh. you know, call it what you will, but that is what I read for the most, si- most part. A lot of Far Side, which I've been trying to get my hands on. I have like the encyclopedia collection of Calvin and Hobbes, but I have not been able to find the, uh, I think there might be a Far Side version of it, but I feel like we kids are missing out on that stuff now. There is a Far Side that was, I don't know, it was like a, a 10-year celebration, or it was some kind of anniversary. And I really recommend that version because Gary Larson talks about the different comics and he points things out. And in particular, I remember he's he describes himself as not being the best artist and the you know, struggling to get some of his illustrations done. And he'll point things out and he'll say, you know, well, if you notice in this one, the the people don't really have any hands. And I kind of gave up after trying to. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, he talks about where some of the ideas came from and so on. And it's it's kind of fun to be. You probably won't be surprised to hear. He's got a very uh, charming personality that comes through in his comments about the cartoons. Oh, I've, I've got to imagine. I'm going to have to check that out. I, there's some time to time, like every few months I'll sit there and, and one of the uh comics that he's drawn which comes into my mind and i start laughing because i think the jokes are so funny i've tried them a few times <laughs> when you tell them without the um the right. animation behind it right, it's right. not really it doesn't go very well <laughs> some are a bit dated uh, probably would not be accepted in today's time but i still think they're great and you know like obviously those types of comics are really interesting to me uh, obviously the superhero comics were interesting i did read more of like the the childhood horror comic stuff i mean call it not really horror, but like obviously the the goosebumps of the world and some of that other stuff. Not not stuff that I would do today. I hate horror movies and I hate anything horror. But as a kid, for some reason, I was intrigued by. Didn't it. Didn't mind being scared. No, no, and like it wasn't that scary. It's, it's probably the same amount of horror I can handle today. I could go watch a Goosebumps movie, but I'm not watching Hereditary. Yeah, <laughs> right. Well, getting back to Calvin and Hobbes, I'm not sure exactly what to if I'm exaggerating this but i just feel like i'm not sure there has been an accomplishment from my lifetime that i consider greater than calvin and hobbes it just as an it, as an artistic accomplishment or an intellectual accomplishment it just it works on so many levels and it's so it, it's just astounding to me how consistently great that was for as long as he did it and just how surprising it was and how uh how how well it's held up uh it just feels like uh uh, that really the the artistic achievement of that just feels like it's uh, unsurpassed well and it was so intelligent it was so risky it was quite adult but as a kid you could still appreciate it because the animation was great there's still like shorts that were really funny that a kid could relate to and when you read it later as an adult, you're like, oh, man, like, I, you know, I, there was specifically one about Calvin saying something about sex appeal. And I had no idea what that meant. And then <laughs> yeah. now as an adult, like a complete like, like, how did he know what sex appeal was? Like, I, I, I barely <laughs> still understand the concept of sex appeal. But as a kid, I still have these vivid memories of that stuff. And and it, it, you're right. It's like what holds up today um, that not only like adults can enjoy, kids can enjoy 
it's visually still you you never know it could be in any era the writing is fantastic yeah and i just think you know the calvin hobbs far side dr seuss is a bit different it was a little bit more poetry but you know i think the analogies and the allegories still hold well today um which is why i chose it now is dr seuss did you go through the whole range i mean i think a lot of kids in america will get dr seuss even before they start preschool it'll be like a how to read kind of uh you know there's hop on pop and and one fish two fish there's some of the really uh you know there's the abc book and that kind of thing did you have those or were you coming at it a little bit older and where it was more of the narratives and so on yeah i was probably in like second third grade and i remember it because I, at this point I was I was in Dhaka in Bangladesh. I was at the American School, American International School of Dhaka. We had a really cool library. Or as a kid, I thought it was super cool. Like uh, almost like you walk in, it's an adventure. You're you're walking around, you're picking up these books, you're you're reading through them. It's like you know, uh, it's a home away from school, the mm. library at least. And I very vividly remember not those earlier books, but the Lorax and Green Eggs and Ham, um, the Grinch. Uh, I'm, I'm blanking on on some of the other ones, but there was another one that was um, that was pretty prominent. Yeah, well, the Cat in the Hat was a pretty cat. Obviously, uh, yes, of course, the Cat in the Hat. The one, I, oh, oh, the places you'll go. Yeah, right. And the Lorax always stuck with me the most. Gr- Green Eggs and Ham was definitely one that I really loved and appreciated. You know, as a kid, even I was just curious by, uh, like, what is this green stuff? Um, yeah. <laughs> both from a standpoint of gr- like green eggs and ham, but growing up in you know uh, Muslim culture, like I I didn't eat pork. I do eat it now, but I didn't really know what ham was. So I was just like, "What is this? Is this an actual thing that's green?" <laughs> um, and I'm super. In- this guy is being very very persistent about you know pushing this on to someone. Nothing seems to you know keep him from doing that. Why is this so intriguing? And this guy has so much conviction in this food. I'm believing it now. You know, green eggs and ham sound like a, a lovely case of eclectic eating. Yeah, right. And so have you revisited these as a, a grown-up? Are you a parent or or do you have nieces and nephews or anything? Have you taken a look at the Dr. Seuss books that you remember from uh, when you were a child? I am <clears throat> I am not a parent. Um, I do have a lot of friends who have kids, and mm. I always ask, like, are they reading Dr. Seuss? And, yeah. you know, I'm excited to see them reading. You know, obviously, there's so many other books now that kids are reading, but you'd think that they would have that, uh, the, the, the Cat in the Hat, Green Eggs and Ham, the Lorax. Um, if I did have kids, I would 100% die, be all over that. Because even to this day, you know, the Grinch, just even as a... Um, animation masterpiece is still something I, I love watching. Um, and the Lorax is something that I have revisited uh, and Green Eggs and Ham, like where I've gone through. I'm like, this still holds up. This still is entertaining to me. The visuals are amazing. Um, it's it's pretty intelligent. It's really simple. And uh, yeah, I still appreciate it to this day. Yeah. Okay. Before we dive into the Lorax, let's put a little more context around you and and your interests and so on. Are you tell why don't we start with Lola Media? What was your goal for that and what does the company do? Yeah, so Lola Media started out as I was just really interested in taking you know smart conversations and making them a bit more 
entertaining and approachable to a wider audience. And what I mean by smart conversations is more, you know, a lot of people, uh, the access that you might have to interesting people and, and people who have great things to say that you could learn from maybe is not as accessible as it is. Like a lot of people have privilege or they're surrounded by those people or they get to go to a, they get access to them, the schools that they went to, et cetera. And I always thought that it should be always available to a larger audience. I, I never liked the idea of exclusivity when it comes to college or anything. I just feel like why shouldn't everyone have access to smart conversations, knowledge of the world? Uh, why, why does it have to be um, leveled like certain cities or certain neighborhoods or certain countries or underdeveloped areas don't have access to that. And I just like the idea of using audio as a way to bring that to people. So Lola Media was focused on either it's personality driven or it's narratives around conversations that we think are interesting, everything from business and finance to mental health. And like, how do we make this like wacky, entertaining where, you know, two hosts with great personalities, unfiltered voices that have great chemistry can make something like mental health seem very not, not only approachable, but comfortable where you're laughing at yourself almost. Mm. Um, and, and that's an example. We have another show called messy situations. That's, that's, a uh, you know, normalizing your mess, um, and being able to talk about it. Better call Paul is obviously a show about, um, the legal and business behind Hollywood. Paul, my co-host is a former Marvel attorney and everybody, is interested in Hollywood and entertainment. I mean, look at how we've been consuming the Johnny Depp Amber Heard trial, or we care about, you know, Squid Game, or we care about the Marvel movies. And but what is the business and legal behind it? And so we hook you with something and then we kind of push you down where you're subtly learning. And I've always thought that, you know, doc part of the reason why I wanted to bring up Dr. Seuss is that that is an example of something that is very intelligent, but it's presented in a way that's fun, that's unique, that's um, visually stimulating. It's kind of wacky, but the messages are really, really important. Yeah. I'm going to take a crack at shifting the way you framed that a little bit, because sure. the way you described it sounds like you're uh, giving people a, a spoonful of sugar and you're sneaking in the medicine. Um, <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> but the way I'd like to think of it is... I don't like eating uh, pure sugar. I like knowing that I'm getting some nutrients, too. And so I would seek out podcasts or, or conversations like that, um, not just to kind of, you know, get the uh, get the intellectual side in coming in like a Trojan horse or something. But I would seek it out knowing, well, I don't want just the gossip or just the fluff. I want to have something that also where people kind of know what they're talking about or getting a little bit of the some intellectual nourishment from that too. Is that, um, is that fair to say that that? <laughs> yeah, no, I think that's very, I think, yeah, I think it's, um, it is, it, there are people who are definitely searching and then there's people who, you know, stumble upon. And I think it's the example to take what you've just said. It's, do you want a burger from Shake Shack or do you want one from McDonald's? Mm. If the price was the same. Um, and I would go to say that Shake Shack is a better burger. It's better ingredients. It tastes better. You know, the branding's better. There's all sorts of stuff that just make it better um, if you go out and just get a burger. Like a McDonald's burger is kind of blah. Um, not to say that I don't enjoy a double cheeseburger or a quarter pounder <laughs> with cheese, but I'd rather go for a Shake Shack burger um, over that and obviously over In-N-Out as a New York person. But, um, but yeah, I, I think you're right. I think that's the right way to frame it. Yeah. Well, I have found, I mean, I've just been blown away in the time that I've been doing this. The uh, people who have reached out to me and they are 
you know, they're one of my favorite listeners. Shout out to her is a truck driver. And she enjoys listening to the history of literature while she's on her long routes. And you just think, what would she have had? I mean, I guess there there could have been audiobooks and so on. But as far as just a conversation uh, prior to podcasts, you know, she would have probably had a lot of news, which would have been, politi- you know, what you get on the AM radio or something. Uh, but, you know, it, that's not always what people want as far as just overhearing people who are talking about things and taking things seriously, but who maybe aren't just focused on politics uh, and the latest headlines. Uh, you know, I, I feel like we're providing service for her. Well, also, you're a great host. So it's it's being a great host where you can bring something out of the person that you're interviewing and you're creating chemistry is important as well. I think mm-hmm. it's an example of if I'm in, the, in, when I was in college and I would take, I was a foreign policy major, some of them were just, I mean, I'm, I'm dying in there. Like I'm, I, I can't really listen to this as much as the content is really important to listen to. The delivery is just very boring. Or would I rather back in the day watch uh, John Stewart deliver, uh, you know, political news in a way that I was just very much more engaged with? Or I like stories. There has to be something personally that I need to resonate with someone. Like if I'm in a foreign policy class, if you start telling me what happened, you know, Iraq War One as a story in, in a format that has like a beginning, middle and end with some drama and suspense, like I'm probably going to listen to it more. I, and that's just how I personally learn. And, and I think that's why, you know, people like certain podcasts over the others. Like it's it, a lot of times it is personality driven. Um, it's about chemistry. It's about opinions. It's about, you know, suspense and drama. And that can be created in all sorts of ways. Comedy. Okay. Well, this is all going to feed right into the Lorax. But before we get there, let me ask you one more question about you and your interests. Do any of them involve the environment? Do my interests involve the environment? Well, yeah. Or like your, I didn't notice any podcasts about it. Or I was, when you chose the Lorax as the book to discuss, I wondered if you were, you know, in the ecology movement or if you hosted a podcast on the environment or something like that. But uh, I'm just wondering how that fits into your your background and your focus. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I generally care about the environment. Um, I, I'm trying to be a more conscious consumer, and I try to be like I, I wouldn't say like I'm 100% on doing the things that I should be doing or need to be doing, but I I genuinely care that um, you know the environment is an important thing and the things that we can do to make it better and save whatever we can is really important. But at the same time, like I believe in capitalism and and I I enjoy business and and um, I'm interested in, in that as well, but doing it in a way what I'm excited to see is that people are being more conscious about it. And therefore, I try to be more conscious about it. Like if I was to go buy a car tomorrow, I'm not going to buy uh, a gas guzzler or something that pollutes, you know, highly pollutes. Um, when I buy food, if I can afford to, I try to buy things that are farm raised um, or, or sorry, how should I say it? Uh, ethically raised and, um, you know, not not factory farmed and I would like to get better and better at that it's something that I've it's grown in me over time where you just appreciate nature more and you see the the videos that come up and it's so heartbreaking you you have to at least make some conscious decisions and then if you can over time just increase that okay let's take a quick break and then come back with a deep dive into the lorex
Okay, we are back with Mesh Lakani, co-host of Better Call Paul and CEO of Lola Media. So, do you remember the first time you read the Lorex? I remember the time-ish. Um, like I said, I, it was early elementary school. I was in a, a library in Dhaka and Bangladesh. That, that was an American school. And I read it, and I think what stuck out to me was it was just so colorful, and the characters were so interesting, and the drawings were so captivating. But I was also, in all honesty, as a kid, as like a, a little dude who was interested in machines and stuff, I was also fascinated by the contraptions that were being created in this book by the guy. Um, <laughs> right. I, I forget what they, I forget what the main characters, um, one of the main characters' name is, the, uh, the, the villain in the story. There's the Onceler. The Onceler. That's the Onceler. <laughs> you know, I'm torn. I was torn because I'm like, you know, the Onceler is like, he knows how to make cool stuff. Like, he just made a <laughs> tractor that's got eight axes on it, and he's clearly um, an industrialist. He's bringing his family in from God knows where, probably paying them pennies. This guy's a business builder. But then at the same time, the drawings are so heartbreaking, and you start seeing the this visual of beautiful trees and animals and the colors slowly just get darker and darker and darker through the book and it becomes I remember more both of that like i remember both things like this guy is an interesting business person and i'm interested as an inventor but i'm also like oh but it's like one you can't do one without harming the other and, and i remember that as a kid yeah which is I mean, a lot of people will argue, is the message lost? Is it, is it too sophisticated for kids? But, but that really is the message, right? You, you chop down trees and you lose something and you have nice, fun, shiny objects, but they come at a cost. That seems like a child could grasp that. Yeah, I mean, I think that you could grasp that this guy was greedy and he put his greed in front of everything else. Like, he didn't think about, hey, for every tree I chop, let me plant another one or let me make sure that I don't touch this one area so that the Lorax and the and the um, the truffle trees can hang out nicely. And what, what were they called? The uh, the other end, the Barbalutes. Um, the Barbalutes <laughs> were able to like, okay, listen, we'll make you a deal. I mean, one... There's there are so many things that this guy did wrong, and I think <laughs> and I think that's why it's it could have been way more complicated. I think it was pretty simple. He had he had some conscious about it, like in the book, and I just reread it, and he has this thing where he's like, I felt bad when you know he's sending the barbalutes on it. The Lorax is like, barbalutes got to go, they can't live anymore. He's like, yeah, I feel bad, but I got to keep making money. I got to keep making money. Um, and at the end, he realizes that he fucked up pretty greatly and he just thought it was infinite i mean part of when i reread it i was like this guy did not see that his supply like the inventory was slowly decreasing of trees like did he not notice that there was one tree left and his business was going to be completely kaput yeah but i mean let's that i think that's also an analogy for how many businesses die um when you just don't pay attention to what happens um and someone else comes in so I think every kid should read this stuff because especially now as we are more conscious about the environment and there's more commentary about it and people are starting businesses that are trying to be more mindful about how they do things. What better book to read than that? Yeah. Well, you know, it's funny when you, you say that about uh, that he was doing everything wrong. Apparently, loggers came out with a rival book about sustainable <laughs> forestry and they called it The True Axe. 
Oh, amazing. <laughs> uh, you know, I can remember in the 70s, I remember there was uh, some talk about conservation and about use of, um, you know, natural resources and, and that kind of thing. But I also remember this was in the era and it's been kind of mocked in uh, uh, a couple of uh, different pop culture shows. One was in Mad Men where they have a picnic and then they get up and they just shake out their blanket and all the trash <laughs> and everything just goes out of the, yeah, just into the meadow. And I remember that being, there was like this transition where, yeah, if you were riding in a car and you, you know, were drinking a, a bottle of soda or something and you finish, you just throw it out the window, you know, I don't need trash in my car. And I remember there was this sort of um, campaign to say, you know, don't litter and this is Mother Earth and, you know, all of that. But it was all, um, you know, it all felt so new uh, and and kind of surprising to people, but they got it. And it was, yeah, we we don't want to walk around and have trash everywhere. And I feel like there was... You know, just something so basic as it's important to have clean air to breathe and we should want the water we drink to be pure and, and you know, that kind of thing. I'm wondering if we're so polarized now we can't even agree on basic elements like that. Well, I think it's if you haven't left this country, go visit other parts of the world and see what happens when you have clean drinking water and there's trash everywhere. And, you know, it, it's just an absolute disaster. And then maybe it'll give you some appreciation for why this is needed, you know, and, and what this is your land. You want to treat it well. And, and if you want to think like if everything's polarized this way. So at least then think about it from a selfish standpoint. Is the air clean for you? Do you want to be surrounded by trash? If the answer is yes, I want clean air. No, I don't want trash. Then I think there's only one route to go. Um, and when it comes to your pockets, look, there's always ways of making money. Yeah. And I think what we've seen is that times change and, and things get hopefully better. Or at least there's innovation and stuff. There's a lot of movement towards climate and there's so many funds and innovation going around the climate startups and stuff now so it's one it's just one of those things like why would you want land that has been completely destroyed and now you don't have anything and i think that's kind of the point of lorax this guy ran into the ground let's assume a couple things not only was his knee was it called thief sneeds sneeds yeah which i think was things we think we need was his idea <laughs> <laughs> and and these things are selling out and this guy is like building and building and building and building and now he's got you know all his family members almost could bet 100% he's paying them jack shit because this guy is you know <laughs> he, he he doesn't have a conscience about paying the reason why he hired his family is so he could pay them nothing um, let's just be honest and then everything he's out no more needs to be made no more truffle trees to chop down. All the animals are gone. He's living on nothing. His family leaves him. He's left with nothing. Let's assume that he probably spent all of that money anyways because his expenses went up and everything. And now he's living in at the you know the beginning of that book. He's living in that little treehouse, yeah. um, <laughs> and he he has nothing else to live on besides his shame. And he knows he knows that he did a wrong thing. And he, you know, at the end of the book, he's holding on to that last seed and he's waiting for someone who is worthy. Um, and he is not worthy. Like, otherwise he would have, he would have planted himself. He knows that he, it's because even if you plant in himself, he cannot be the savior 
of the thing that he created, which was the destruction. And I, and I do think it shows that people can change at the end of the day. Like they realize their mistakes and they look for someone else to like come who's maybe more pure at heart. I don't know. I really like that whole part of it where you're, you're looking and he's still looking for a buck, right? He still charges the kid money to, t- to tell, <laughs> hear the story, but he's still got to live, you know? <laughs> well, you know, a lot of the critics would say this is anti-business. It's indoctrinating children to uh, hate capitalism and so on. Is that uh, you, you view it as more nuanced than that? Yeah, I look at it like, I mean, like I said, as a kid, I was fascinated by this guy, the inventor. He was a genius. Yeah. Um, I think if you looked at it strictly from the standpoint of what he was able to build, I mean, let's just, you know, it was pretty phenomenal. Um, he was a smart guy. He was a doer. He came up with ways to make things more efficient, i.e. chopping trees down, truffle trees down. But at the end, he did not manage uh, expectations. And I think he thought there was no end in sight. And I think in business, you have to prepare that the landscape is going to change. You're going to get competition or things might run out or, you know, things become different. People don't use a BlackBerry anymore, right? People don't, you know, they use a smart, they use an iPhone anymore. If all those less the lessons are out there that you can be great at business, but how long does it last? And I think the greatest business minds innovate, they adapt. Um, and you know, they, they do want to give back. Um, you know, they do want to create an environment that's healthy. Like that's all the stuff that we're moving towards. Um, and so that's how I would look at it. Or if I was, if I, today you asked me, I haven't read it to any kids, but if I was reading it, I would have this discussion with this kid. Um, like, let's talk about this. Like, and, and I think uh, that's what I would be excited about. At a certain age, like, let's talk about your feelings. What do you think about this? Is business bad? Let me th- hear the pros and cons. Like, it's not a bad book. Like, it, the message is still great. Yeah. Like, use and abuse and throw away. Um, and also, don't run your business into the ground. Like, he ran, he ran out of trees. He should have seen that coming. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Now, there was uh, a film in 2012. Have you seen that? You know, I can't say I've seen it. Um, I forgot that it existed. And I remember when the trailer came out, I was like, oh, I should see this movie. But I I think that any, you know, adaptation is usually disappointing. Besides Jim Carrey's The Grinch, which is pretty hilarious. Um, (laughs) But, you know, Mike Myers' Cat in the Hat was weird. And uh, (laughs) I I think I was kind of like, um... I'm okay. Like I, I probably yeah. would watch it now after this conversation. I'd be curious. Like, how did they make this 13 minute read into an hour and a half? Yeah. Um, and in my head, I was thinking if they did make a movie because I had forgotten they made one. I was like, man, Danny DeVito would be the perfect Lorax, um, or <laughs> or some character in this. And I, he was cast in the movie. I don't know if he was Lorax or not, but he's in the movie. Yeah. I checked it yesterday. Have you seen it? Uh, no, but I can remember the cartoon. Uh, we right. watched that in school. Uh, and I remember how vivid that, that was, but like you said, that's probably like a 15 or 20 minute, uh, thing. But my understanding is that the film, the 2012 film has taken a lot of criticism from environmentalists who have said they've watered down the message. They've turned it into something that, that promotes buying products, just like (laughs) any other movie. And there was this story of something that (laughs) happened at a school in Virginia where, uh, over a hundred school children were gathered in this assembly room. They sat through a reading of the Lorax, and then it was followed by a presentation from a Mazda marketing executive who urged the children to persuade their parents to test drive a Mazda SUV, oh which uh, <laughs> 
So the book has been, you know, all over the place in terms of its uh, the uses that people have made from it. Well, let's. I think what it says is that there are one slurs everywhere that are trying to take advantage of any scenario, and I think that's a perfect example of like, hey, we could sell some, we could sell some shit to the parents and the kids. Let's use this cool book here. Um, I think like the modern day version of the Lorax is a movie like Ye- like a series like Yellowstone. If you ever mm. seen Yellowstone, uh, essentially this beautiful land in uh, in Wyoming that Kevin Costner owns, and he protects it. With his like, doesn't matter. I mean, mur- like, can't like killing people. Whatever it takes to make sure that the real estate developers do not take this land and make it into apartments because he cares about the land. He cares about the animals. He cares about the you know everything about it. Obviously, he's done some crazy things to like keep that land. But like, he's that he's the Lorax. Um, he speaks for the trees. You know, he'll also kill you. But uh, it's it's a bit more of a violent depiction of the Lorax. Or obviously, Avatar is uh, a similar example of of the story of the Lorax. Um, and now we're getting two, three, four more uh, movies of that. But it, they're all kind of similar messages um, where it's the, you know, the villain is essentially big business and industrialists who just don't give a shit. Yeah. Um, and that is going to be out there always. And how do we stop that? I mean, the... I'm always thinking of, you know, a company like Google that starts out with the slogan, don't be evil. And then they have to kind of backtrack from that and remove that from from their credo. (laughs) And, you know, there is this requirement that we put on companies if they are for profit, that for their shareholders, they have to make decisions that are in the, the best interest of the profits. And sometimes they may feel like their hands are tied and they would rather, you know, they would love to to be uh uh, in favor of more sustainable uh, practices and so on, but they might find it hard to justify the expense or the cost. And what do we, as a society, how do we fix that? How do we address that? That's a really good question. I, I think part of what you said was very correct is that a lot of times companies make decisions because the pressure from shareholders or Wall Street or what the stock price is doing, and we as individuals participate in that. If you have a 401k, if you have a retirement plan, if you're investing in the stock market, you too only want to see this stuff go up. But at the same time, you don't want these companies to let you want these companies to make more conscious decisions and have better practices. But at some point, you know, they've they've got to act in favor of profits. And I think as long as we educate people on how this stuff works instead of just saying, oh, like I put my money in the stock market and then I'm going to criticize. Um, well, you know, you also have a voice. Mm-hmm. And I think collectively, as more people learn about this stuff and have a voice and a younger generation comes up and they want different things and they're the, you know, the new entrepreneurs and the new shareholders. And we're talking things that have to work. Like we're talking generations ahead of us. Um, yeah. Decades and decades and decades. Um, learning this stuff is really important. Um, and And also, capitalism is important when it comes to this because that is funding... You know, new companies that might have um, solutions mm. or innovation around this stuff. Otherwise, how does it get funded? Well, it gets funded then by you know philanthropists or nonprofits who funds those wealthy people. Um, and so the, you know the cycle just continues to go. You know, this is the world that we live in. Money is you know money at the end of the day is what gets people to do things. Um, Obviously, there's like other things that get people to do things, but you know what I mean. Like, if you want to make really, really big change, you're still affecting the pockets 
um, of someone. And so therefore, what are you replacing that with? Right. And if you start to get old like me and you start to feel like everything is hopeless, one thing you can try doing is to sit down with a child or a grandchild or whoever in your life and read the Lorax with that person and discuss it with him or her and hope that the next generation is going to develop the kind of sensibility that will help solve some of these problems. Well, yeah, I mean, we're the one slur, right? The older yeah. we get, we're the one slur <laughs> who's like given up and, and we, we have no hope. But you're waiting for someone who has hope, who's not been exhausted, you know, who doesn't have the the scars. You you do need that. You need that like optimism to come in. And and I think again, going back to the book, like that's what he does. At the end, he gives him the seed. He's not able to do it. He is hopeless about what is where that part of the world has come or whatever land he's in. And um he says, Hey kid, like, you know, you could make a difference. And I think that is the message is that no matter how hopeless we get or how things don't change, you got to keep inspiring people to do bigger and better things. And I think that in our lifetime, we've seen maybe in the, like 30 years, we've seen things change. But if, when you look at the course of history, to your point back in Mad Men, when people are just like throwing trash and on, on whatever, and you're just, I mean, imagine the oceans and stuff before all that. Mm people are at least more conscious about it and making efforts around it. And I think that's good. That's a good thing. Is it enough? It's, it's something. And I think we can always be more. And I think that is the message that we want to send out that it's don't give up. Yeah. And the message in the book, unless someone like you cares a whole awful lot, nothing is going to get better. It's not, it, it doesn't say here's the bill I want you to support, or here's the, here's the politician you should vote for. It's just asking you to care. Yeah, exactly. It's asking you to care. It's asking you to almost question. Mm. And that's what you want. Like, I, I do love that about the book. It didn't, it didn't ask you to do anything besides like just your awareness. And your awareness enough will take you on a journey. And, and that can be different journeys for different people. Someone might go into politics. Someone might go into business. Someone might go into philanthropy. Someone might go into, you know, environmentalism or whatever it may be. But it's not meant for like, hey, there's one place to go to here and this is what you should do. And not to say, well, that's just how it is. You'd be a sucker if you cared about uh, having trees or clean air or something to just uh, throw up your hands and say, I just I can't win. I'm too small. I'm, I'm insignificant. But to say, no, you need to be part of this. You need to care about the things around you. Yeah. And I think it's uh, I think the obvious thing is like what person in their right mind would say they would prefer yeah. The land right. post one slur <laughs> demolishes it to pre like nobody, you know, I mean, think about it now. I mean, everybody wants to get out of the cities. They want to be in nature. You know, they're doing more camping. They're doing more like just trips moving out of the city. We're seeing this like COVID made it very apparent that there's a, a need to be outside and have like trees and clean air and yeah. things that we just didn't really think about because you know, we've been trapped inside for so long and just like doing our own thing and being in our, our own world. And then when you get trapped inside, it's like the little things that matter. It, it reminds me, this is a totally different story, but it reminds, there's a Simpsons episode where um, Bart and Lisa and all the kids of Springfield are obsessed with Itchy and Scratchy and Marge pushes <laughs> to like get the show banned and, right. or make it, make it like very, very um, censored. And they start watching and they're like, this is boring. And there's like that moment where they go outside and all the kids go outside for the first time in like God knows <laughs> yeah. how long and they rub their eyes and they think about how amazing it is. I think about that 
all the time because <laughs> it's so true. Yeah, yeah. And sometimes the the debate will be like, well, do you want uh, a million you know, jobs and people being able to feed their family or, or do you care about this one spotted owl or something like that? And, and instead, really, the debate can be... Uh, you know, do you do you like hearing birds sing because they could all be gone or, you know, that like if we don't take care of this, we might not have an ocean that is anything like the ocean that we're used to having and that the planet is used to having. Yeah. And I think that's also the beauty of like, again, when it comes to like entertainment in Hollywood, like there are amazing documentaries that are created. People are doing TikTok videos on this stuff all the time. Like there's all sorts of ways that people are bringing awareness that are hitting people in their feels to like care a little bit more. And one, you know, the documentary on on you know veganism might not be the one that hits you, or this one on oil, or this one on like. But eventually, something will get you. Um, and, and that's kind of again going back to the Lola Media question you asked before. Like, it's all all we're trying to do is bring you in through some avenue that you find interesting. Yeah. Um, and, and that's the important thing is to how do you relate to something, someone, and not everyone is going to be brought in through the same, uh, through the same avenue or what interests them. And that's why you have to create stuff for everyone. Um, and that's the important thing. Yeah. And Dr. Seuss, who a lot of people associated with these primitive childlike preschool type stories and, and words and the sing-songiness of his rhymes and the you know, the drawing obviously for kids. And he was able to take a very grown up position and say, this matters a lot to me. And I'm going to, through my art, put it into something that I think will have a deliver a message where even if people don't necessarily think they're, they're getting a message, it will resonate with people. Yeah. And I think that's the way to think about Dr. Seuss. Like there's a message in there that he cared about, about humanity and all this type of stuff. And even like the Grinch is a good example of like someone who's really evil is just something or, or really just, you know, has what they're saying is like no heart. It's probably just, maybe he's going through some shit and he hasn't experienced love or felt love or whatever it might be. And the guy becomes a hero because of some kid at the end who like shows him love. And yeah. it's a great freaking message Yeah, and yeah. that people can change <laughs> and that people are wounded and, God knows, like think of any superhero villain story. Not well, most of them. Some are born like straight up evil, but you know the the archetype is there is something there that this person has experienced at a young age that has made them this person today. Uh, yeah. Can they be changed? It's unclear, but I think that goes back to Doctor Seuss. Like he had these messages. The Green Eggs and Ham one is persistence. <laughs> you know, it's yeah. Like, well, and being open to trying new things. I mean, exactly. It's, <laughs> it's the one uh, you give to your kid when you say, "See, you might actually uh, enjoy this if you give it a try." Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was like with me. Green eggs and ham with me was is probably things like that I appreciate today, like um, raw fish, uh, fish, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. you know, veggies. <laughs> I mean, like capers, like random things that I'd be like onions. Honestly, as a kid, I was like, "Why are you putting onions in my food?" Now I like need onions and everything. Right, right. And I think the the point of the book is not only this person's being persistent, he has conviction that he can change the world, but finally you're willing to try something new and that you evolve over time. Like everything, we evolve. Mm. Okay, well, let's leave things there. Mesh Lakani, thank you so much for joining me on the History of Literature. 
Thank you so much for having me. I, this has been this has actually been a lot of fun. Uh, I was a little worried about picking this book, but you, you made it <laughs> you made it a, a lot more fun. I, I'm glad I wasn't just saying like, is this guy just read? Is he reading this book because he doesn't read good? <laughs> Well, you know, I have one story that I'll share with you that I left uh, I left out so far. We could fill it in here. Uh, do you know where the original drawings are now for the, for Doctor Seuss? For yeah, for the the Lorax. Oh, for the Lorax? No, I don't. Yeah. So I, I was reading this when I was doing some research on the book. They are in the Johnson Presidential Library. And apparently Lyndon Johnson, who considered himself to be a, a, a very uh, devoted environmentalist and had preserved a million acres of federal land while he was in office and his wife had made uh, highway beautification one of her projects, apparently he heard that this book was in the works. And oh, wow. he called up Dr. Seuss and thanked him in advance for his gift of the drawings. And he, he said, wow. and it, it came as a surprise to Dr. Seuss, you know, here's the, the president, or maybe he was, I don't know if he was out of office at that point, but he said, you know, I just wanted to thank you for donating the originals of those drawings of your new book <laughs> to my presidential library. And Dr. Seuss said, well, okay, you're welcome. And, and then sent them along. And that's how he got them, which, which kind of struck me as, you know, maybe that should be a little bit of, of an appendix about, uh, you know, that that it's not just big business. It's also government that can acquire things in a particular way or can get things done if they need to. <laughs> that was very Wunsler. It's a very Wunsler-like <laughs> attitude for someone who was working through the uh, public trust. I mean, they, he needed a Lorax to protect his work and be like, this is for everyone. And, you know, uh... <laughs> right. Okay. Well, thank you again for joining me. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Okay, there we go. That's going to do it for this episode of the History of Literature. My thanks to Mesh Lakani for joining me. You can check out his podcast, Better Call Paul, wherever you get your podcasts. I think we will have some Ulysses next with Mike Palindrome. How great is that? We have a top 10, which he's bringing along from his Twittering, where he and a bunch of Joycey and Buffs have read Ulysses together slowly with frequent commenting to one another. And lots more good stuff on the way, too. Another best of episode, hopefully. I think it's going to be Oscar Wilde this time. Always fun. And we've got poets and economics coming up. Kurt Vonnegut and the environment. Speaking of the Lorax, this was right around the same time. Vonnegut spoke at the very first Earth Day in 1970. What else? How about some 1930s British spy novels? Great era. Great decade for that. And D.H. Lawrence... And Lady Chatterley's Lover. Steaming out of August, literally headed for a good September. Maybe we can't see it yet with the steam this thick, but hopefully we'll see it soon. Speaking of which, I hope we'll see you again soon, even though I've never seen you once, not a single time. <laughs> ah, I hope my voice crawls forward like one of those undersea creatures with no eyes, because they live where there is no light. And insinuate instead of instead of seeing you, I, I, <laughs> this creature insinuates itself into your ear, not because I'm a predator looking for prey or a vicious animal looking to kill to survive, but just because we're down here. It's so dark and scary. It's kind of cold, and it's better if we don't have to face this alone. It's happier that way. 
I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.